If you could, with me, open up to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. We'll be in verse 57, uh, theoretically through chapter 28, verse 15. Matthew 27, verse 57. We left off last Sunday with the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Uh, In verse 50 of chapter 27, it says that, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so finishing our work of redemption, uh, redemption, drinking the cup that the Father had given him, Jesus finally gave up his spirit. Everything was paid in full. And now we have... We know that the crucifixion began at around 9 a.m. in the morning, and it ended at 3 in the afternoon. Basically, the last three hours of that were in total darkness. And so we pick up in verse 57 this morning with Jesus having died and his body still on the cross. In verse 57, it says, When it was evening, that's anywhere between 3 and sundown, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, and he went to Pilate. And asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And so Matthew begins to tell us how Jesus was buried. And we find that the disciple, that a disciple of Jesus, a rich man named Joseph, and he was from Arimathea, went to Pilate, the governor of Judea, the Roman governor, and asked for permission to take Jesus' body and to bury it. John 19, and you're going to see me kind of jump through all the Gospels here. Uh, John 19, 38 through 32, tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. And that actually Nicodemus from John 3 was there with him to get the body. We'll talk about that in a second. And Luke 23, 50 through 56, tells us that Joseph was a member of the council. See, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the one, the council that just condemned Jesus to death. He was a member of that council, and it says there in John uh, and Luke 20, uh, 20, 50, uh, 23, 50 through 56, that they had condemned Jesus, but that Joseph was a good and righteous man and did not consent to their decision and action, actions. And so he was in that council, but he abstained. He said, no, this is not right. This is not what we're doing. And yet, nevertheless, they did it. And so after Pilate gives Joseph this permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross and bury it, Mark 15, 42 tells us that Joseph took Jesus' body down from the cross. And so actually, he went up there and took the nails out. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm not sure if the Romans had to help out or not, but he took his body down, along with Nicodemus apparently, and they carried it to the tomb, which, by the way, was very close nearby. Uh, we know from John 19, tells us that Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus at night, remember Nick at night in John chapter 3, he was with him and, and brought 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and aloes that would be used and mixed with the shroud that Jesus would be wrapped in to help with the scent of decay and all of that. Um, and so we know that Jesus called Nicodemus a leader of Israel in chapter 3. Like, you're a leader of Israel and you don't know these things about you must be born again. And so so we have two members of that high council. We have two members of the highest, the Supreme Court of Israel, who had just condemned Jesus. They're asking for Jesus' body to bring it down, to bury it. 
And so they came to Pilate and did that. And they were trying to do it before sundown. Remember, Jesus died at 3, sun goes down at 6 or sometime around then. And, um, and so uh, the Sabbath, they had to, they had, the time was, it was, it was imminent. And so picking back up in first, verse 59, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which had, he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. This grave, 19, uh, John 19.41, tells us was located right near where Jesus was. It says that where he was crucified, there was a garden, and there, the tomb was there. And so these two locations were right next to each other. So they took it down and probably went not far away and buried the body of Jesus. And it describes here the tomb as something no one else had been buried in. It was Joseph's tomb. Now, what had happened is quite often, uh, you know, because they didn't have a lot of space, they would have a tomb like that, and multiple family members would be buried in there. But that's not the situation. It was a tomb that no one else had been in. Now, we left off last week when we read the prophecy of Isaiah 53, some 720 years, 700 years before Jesus, speaking of all the events surrounding Jesus' death and, and really in those last, that, those last several hours of his life and the trial and all of that. And although it told us many things, in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, you'll want to write that down, it says, "...and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death." although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so here this prophecy from 700 years earlier is fulfilled in Joseph of Arimathea. It's pretty amazing. First, that the grave would be among the wicked. Now, we already know that in Luke 23, 50-51, as I mentioned, that he was a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. This isn't talking about the fact that Joseph was righteous. Well, there's a contradiction. How could he be buried among the wicked when he's buried in a righteous man's grave? No, he was buried among sinners is the idea. Joseph, as righteous as he was in that he sought the kingdom of God, he was still a sinner. And yet, all of them, he was buried in a graveyard, apparently, they were sinners, and that's the point there, that he was buried among the wicked. And what would happen is, do you see many kings buried among common people, or even among certain people? No, they had special tombs dedicated to them, away from everybody else. I mean, you see that with the pyramids and all that stuff. How much more the king of kings and the lord of lords? And yet, he was buried among the wicked, identifying with us, even in his death. It's just pretty amazing. And so the king got buried there among sinners, among the wicked, it was the point. And secondly, Isaiah 59.9 says that the Messiah would be buried with a rich man in his death. And so here he is, Joseph Arimathea, a rich man. And so this is a stunning, stunning accuracy of Scripture here in fulfillment there of Isaiah 53, verse 9. And as you go through Isaiah 53, they're just one after another, the crucifixion, um, that he was silent. All these things you just keep going through and you just see in a massive of mud. So you'll be blessed if you read through Isaiah 53 and also Psalm 22. And so Joseph and Nicodemus take down Jesus from the cross and, bear, and prepare his body for burial at the place of that tomb. And they rolled a great uh, stone in front of it and, and they left. The word there for great in Greek is megos. And so you know it's a megos stone. It's a big stone. And they left. And verse 61 tells us, and by the way, um, 
the way the stones worked in those things is it was easy to get in, hard to get out. It was on usually on a on a pitch where you'd they would be they would be hewn and set up high, and then they would roll down into place. And so it's very difficult to get out of that slot there. And so Mary uh, Magdalene and the others, verse 61, and the other Mary, how would you like to be called other Mary? There are so many Marys. Uh, They were sitting opposite the tomb, verse 61 tells us. The other Mary is probably the same Mary mentioned in verse 56, uh, who was at the cross, the mother of James, that would be James the less, a different James. Could quite possibly be... Well, I just won't go there. I mean, because you can just spend like five hours on all the Marys and all the Jameses. Have fun this week learning all the Marys and all the Jameses on your own. That's a Christmas present for me to you. Um, this Mary could possibly be the sister of, of Mary, Jesus' mother. And so you've got two sisters named Mary. Might have been from a different dad. Just, just have fun. Just, anyways, great. Anyways, James the Less because there's a couple Jameses in there. So this might have been James the Less, and it might have been Matthew's brother. There's a lot of things that I read that I'm not going to share with you at this moment. Anyways, have fun. But it seems that these women, were they were at the cross. And this is cool, because the Gospels have been talking up to this point all about the disciples. But who is, who is at the foot of the cross when Jesus dies? It's the women who had been there all along, behind the scenes, ministering to Jesus faithfully, out of sight, no one sees. And yet, here's the biggest event in human history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these women are at the foot of the cross, faithful as could be. Yes, John was there, but all the dudes, they scattered. And here's these faithful women are there at the foot of the cross. And they are watching what happens with Jesus' body. And what happens with Jesus' body? They're watching him being taken down by Joseph and Nicodemus. And they, they don't know who these people are. They don't know how they're going to treat his body, whether they're going to do a proper burial or not. They're pulling him down, and they're going to go put him in a tomb. And so they are following him. And they're walking at a distance. John 19.41 says that they followed at a short distance. Uh, short distance to the garden tomb. And when they saw the location of the tomb, they left to go get spices. They left to go get the burial spices that they would put, that actually Nicodemus brought with them, but they did not know. And so when they saw the location, they just left, not sticking around to see Joseph and Nicodemus go ahead and prepare the body properly. And so they wanted to give Jesus a proper burial. That's Luke 23, 55 through 56. And so they must have been under this assumption that that, uh, that wasn't happening. And so if you notice, there's a lot of attention to detail in here in Matthew, from the crucifixion to people around the cross to, especially regarding his burial, how he was taken down, who did it, who, he, who they talked to, um, who was involved with all of it, who was watching, who was following, who prepared the body, whose tomb it was. All these things, all these details are laid out, and there's a point to that. There's a divine reason, because, verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, this would have been the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that, that uh, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Wait a second, you turkeys. What's going on here? They knew exactly what Jesus was teaching, that he would die and rise again. And so this is most likely the Sabbath. Some believe that there was actually a high Sabbath in the, in the, 
in that year, when it talks about it in John that it was a special Sabbath, or maybe it's in Matthew here. And so there was a double Sabbath. There's two days, which would help with the math on the three days and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm not going to get into that. But regardless, this is happening the day after preparation, which would make this a Sabbath day. And so they come to Pilate on a Sabbath day, breaking the Sabbath. And it's interesting that they clearly know Jesus' teaching about his resurrection. And although they don't believe it, they say, hey, this is what he said while he was alive, that he, he's going to die and rise again in three days. They knew what he was teaching. And yet, at his trial, they used what he said about the temple against him to condemn him. He, Jesus said, hey, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it again. They knew what he was talking about, yet they did not believe. And here, they go ahead and use it to get their way with Pilate. These guys are interesting. And so they come to Pilate, and they let him know about what Jesus claimed. Hey, this guy said he's going to raise again. Now, here's the scenario, Pilate, if you want this thing to finally be done, verse 54. Therefore, they said, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. I mean, just insult over insult. And as we will read in just a minute, this is actually the propaganda that will matriculate throughout the society as they make sure everybody believes that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. We'll get there in a minute. We'll read that account. But here we read the account that the leaders of Israel went to great lengths to make sure that Jesus stayed in the tomb. If anyone was more motivated... To have Jesus in that tomb, it was these guys. They even went to Pilate on the Sabbath to make sure that this deal was done. None of this resurrection nonsense would happen. So verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard or you have guards, one or the other, I don't know. Either I'm giving you guards or you guys have guards, the temple guards. Go and make it as secure as you can. Do whatever needs to be done to make the thing secure. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so the tomb was sealed and secured. Now, how did they do that? I don't know. I've read a lot of archaeology this week. Perhaps it was a cork stone that was put in place. Um, perhaps it was a wedge that was put in place that sealed it. Perhaps it was just the fact that there's a giant rock there, um, you know, covering it. Whatever it is, maybe they took wax and and put a, an actual Roman seal on there with the governor's stamp. That If you broke it, it was under penalty of death. I don't know. There's a lot of speculation out there. But it was sealed. And it was guarded. And I believe it was probably the temple guard. Because, as we're going to see in a minute, the temple guard, when the angel does all this stuff, they don't go running to Pilate. They go running to the chief priest. And so the tomb was guarded, and it was sealed, and I think... It was very secure. And so Pilate gives them what they want to ensure that no one will disturb the body, and this can finally go away. Can you imagine after crucifying Jesus, after that whole week, then they come back to you after that whole event and say, oh my goodness, you want what now? It just never stops, right? Pilate just wanted this to go away, and it's finally he's dead. Yay, was Pilate's view. And now he keeps coming back to Jesus, and they keep coming back and say, now we got to make sure he stays there. Chapter 28, verse 1. I'm sorry, how many chapters are there in Matthew? 28. 
I mean, this is cause for celebration, isn't it? We began. <laughs> I feel like there should be a documentary rolling. What was it, March 2022? May 2022, yeah. Chapter 28, which is why I want to focus just on the first word for the next several weeks. No, I'm just kidding. No. Two more messages on Matthew, kind of. We're going to finish uh, through verse 15 today. We're going to take the following week to focus on more of a Christmas-themed uh, focus on the 24th, morning and evening. And then on the 31st, we're going to jump back into the Great Commission and launch us into the next year. Amen. And we're going to probably hover around. Uh, I got to talk to the guys a little bit more about this. But we're going to hover around the mission of the church evangelism. Because Jesus said, go. And if all authority has been given unto him, well... And we're Christians. We should go. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Chapter 28, verse 1, right? Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day, that would be the dawn on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary <laughs> went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Mark 16.3 tells us that as the women were on the way to the tomb, they were wondering, who's going to roll that stone away for us? You know, it's like they were, they were coming back with the spices to bury Jesus properly. It was Sabbath. They didn't have time. And so they're waiting. They were going to open the tomb and try to get it done quickly. Well, no worries, lady. <laughs> Angel of the Lord descends, and he rolls away. The earth shakes, and he rolls away the stone and sits on it. I like to imagine he's just like, yeah, that's right. You know, he probably went, you know. Pretty cool, easy. And notice his appearance is light lightning. They're trying to describe the glory of an angel, one who's in the very presence of God, who sees the very face of God. Angels are in the, in the very presence of God, and here he ascends and transcends and moves into our dimension and stands and does what we can't do and moves the stone and just sits on it. That's amazing. And by the way, I don't think the ladies saw this. I don't think they saw him jump down and do this. I think and you'll have to bear with me for a second. I might get you lost. I think this is the guards' report. The guards are there. It doesn't say the women trembled with fear. It says the guards fell as though they were dead. The guards are going to go and leave before the ladies get there. And go to the high priest and the council of the elders and tell them what happened, as we will read in a minute. How do we know this, is, this happened? Who's on the council? Nicodemus and Joseph. So I believe this is, this, is, this is the guard's account. The guards fall as though they were dead, which is what happens when you run into an angel in their glory. That happens over and over and over. 
And you see that like when John sees an angel in heaven in Revelation, he falls as though he was dead and he says, and he just wants to worship him. That's his response. He's so glorious, I want to worship you. He's just the light and the brilliance is just something we can't describe. And what happens as we read the other Gospels, that the ladies come to the tomb and they see the stone is rolled away. So they're walking there, wondering how the, how the stone is going to be moved. An earthquake happens. By the time they get to the tomb, the stone has been rolled away. They don't see an angel at that point. And Mary Magdalene, she sees that it's, it's open and she, there's no one in there, and she leaves to go tell Peter and John. That's kind of how the story, that's how the synoptic Gospels lay it out. They leave, she leaves to tell Peter and John. And when she goes, the angel appears to the remaining ladies who are there. And that's where we pick up in verse 5, if you're trying to sync all the Gospels. It says, but the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. And so now they are seeing an angel in his glory, and there's two of them actually, and they are afraid. Uh, Matthew's just focusing on the one who's talking as quite often does in, in like with the demoniacs and stuff, even there's two, only one's being focused on. It says, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. It's Easter and Christmas. I love this. Don't be afraid. This is the echo cry from God to his people who seek him, who love him throughout all time. Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed, for I am with you. When the angel of the Lord appears over and over and over and over, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When Jesus gets on the scene, what is he saying? Fear not, for I am with you. The guards, not so much needing to fear, but the angel said, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus. Are you seeking Jesus? And all your sin, and all your worry, and all your heavy-heartedness, no fear. No fear. Tender-hearted. He loves you. But for those who aren't, man, you have something to fear. And we preach that Jesus saves. Come away from sin and come to Jesus and experience peace with God. The guards weren't seeking Jesus, but the women here, they were, and they had nothing to fear. And notice that the angel said that Jesus was crucified and he rose again. This is the gospel. He died and he rose again. By the way, just as he said, this is nothing, this is not news to you, although you're experiencing it in real time. He's been telling you all about this. And an example of that, although I've been quoting the several times it says it in, in Matthew, I'll just give you a Luke quote, Luke 18, 31 through 34. I know, Luke, where's that? And taking to the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. You see, it's just as I told you, just as he told you. He was crucified and he is risen just like he 
said. When I share this stuff about, like, from Genesis to Revelation, when, I, when, when we say, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, and it was so. 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 What do you think Genesis 1 is trying to tell us? That when God speaks... It happens. And this is why Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? No. Only God can forgive sin. Yep. And when God says your sins are forgiven, guess what happens to your sins? They're gone. And like that guy was lowered from the ceiling. He could not see that his sins were forgiven. And so he did something physical so you would understand. I've got power over the unseen, so I'm going to show you something you can see. Get up and walk. And he got up and ran. Woo! He spoke to demons. Leave. And what happened? They left. Thousands sometimes. They even bargained with him. Please, don't send us into the abyss before it's time. Can we please go here? Fine, go ahead. And they went, and all the big piggies ran off the cliff. He said to the girl, get up. Took her hands to get up, and she got up. I mean, over and over and over again, and this is why when we get to the end of Matthew, and it's all leading to that point, and he says, all authority has been given to me. I'm telling you to go. Nah. Oh, really? Then we have a messed up theology of Jesus. He said, I'm going to die and I'll rise again. It just, and the angel says, just like he said. He told you it happened and it happened. And it goes on to say, by the way, at the time in verse 34 of Luke, uh, yeah, of Luke uh, 18, it says, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. Even though Jesus told them, they didn't understand. They didn't grasp it, it says. Well, now they're going to grasp it. <laughs> now is the grasping time, right? God's going to open their eyes. Come and see, the angel says. Come and see the place where he lay. Come look. I want you to be witnesses of the resurrection. And notice the first people of the, the witness of the empty tomb. Who was it? Peter, John, who was it? Ladies, amen. And it's a foreshadowing because then they go tell the disciples that he's risen. What do they do? Meh. It's a foreshadowing of what people do with the gospel. It's so unbelievable. Well, come and see the place where he lay, the angel says. See for yourself. No one had moved the stone. The guards were set. It was sealed. No one was getting in. They were wondering how the stone was going to be moved, all that stuff, until the angel opened it up. And I don't think he was opening it up to let Jesus out, as if that's an issue. I think he was opening it up to let them in, to show what happened, but both probably. Come see the place where he lay. Verse 7, then go quickly, secondly, come see, and then go tell. 
This is what happens to us. God shows us. He reveals something about himself. He shows us that he is risen. We believe that he is risen. There's something that happens in our hearts, that he died for our sin. It's a supernatural thing. There's a revelation that comes to us, and we're born again. And then God immediately says, now go tell. Go tell. That is a natural thing that should be happening. Go tell. Quickly, and go tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, that you will see him. And there you will see him. See, I've told you. Like exclamation point. Go do it. Jesus says, like, go, go tell the disciples he's alive. And then tell them where to go. And he'll meet them. So verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, that's not the whole story because Jesus runs into them on the way. Matthew doesn't talk about that. As Matthew often does, he's just kind of just taking a storyline, not going full with it, but he gives you parts of it. He's just giving you the gist of, of something. And there's a series of events happening the going and coming and, and all these types of things of people, and there's a lot going on there. And I love this MacArthur Study Bible Notes. It helps us kind of give a, just a, a synopsis of what's happening. So I'm just going to read through what the big story is real quickly so you can, you can know what it is. So first, finding the stone rolled away, the women entered the tomb but found it empty, Luke 24, 4. And while they were still in the tomb, the angels suddenly appeared, Luke 24, 4, Mark 16, 5. You can grab my notes later if you want them. The angel who spoke reminded them of Jesus' promise, all his promises, Luke 24, 6-8, and then sent them to find Peter and the disciples to report that Jesus was risen. That's Matthew 28, 7-8, which we just read, and Mark 16, 7-8. The women went. The disciples were skeptical at first. I'm going to stop reading the verses. And then they ran to the tomb where the tomb was, John arrived first, but Peter got in the tomb first. Remember that story out of John 20. They saw the linen wrappings intact, but empty, proof that Jesus was risen. They left immediately. And meanwhile, she returned to the tomb and was standing outside weeping. Wondered what had happened to him. Remember, she's a gardener, right? Who she thinks is a gardener. And Christ appears to her. This is the first appearance of the risen Lord to Mary Magdalene. Beautiful. Sometime soon after that, he met the other women on the road as they went to go tell the disciples and appeared to them as well, which we'll read in just a second here. Later that day, he appeared to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and to Peter. So there's a lot going on there, and Matthew doesn't tell the whole story. He tells part of the story. It's like a cutscene. And when all those things are put together, you get the full picture of what's going on. And by the way, this isn't even the full thing, but Matthew gives us one of those storylines. So Matthew says that the angels tell the ladies, go and tell the disciples that he is risen. In verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them, that is the women, and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see him. So many times, 
people say that Jesus is not worshipped, that worship is translated differently and all this kind of stuff. No, they are worshipping Jesus Christ. And every time an angel is worshipped, they tell you not to worship. Does that make sense? And this is one of the multitude of times that Jesus is receiving worship. Very important to know, you are not to worship anybody but God. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee, and they will see me there. And so what did Jesus do? They worshiped him. He comforted their hearts. Don't be afraid, as he said all the time, as he says to you and to me, as we come to worship him, he who is holy. And then he says, now go. Go and do what I've asked you to do. Go and tell of me to X, Y, and Z. And that's what he does here. Tells them to go. Continue on your way. And so verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Cuts back to the guards who had left previously before they got there. And the guards are now going to the chief priest. They're not going to Pilate. They're going to the chief priest, which tells me they're probably temple guards. And the guards are going to the chief priests, to the Jewish, who will gather the Jewish council, and they told them everything, everything that happened. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders, so the chief priests hear the news, and they, grab, they gather the Supreme Court together, the leaders, and they start, when they gather everybody, they had elders, they all took counsel. Who do you think's in that meeting? Joseph and Nicodemus. And so what did they do? They told them the story of everything. Hey, the angel came down and he rolled away the stone and he sat on it and he gave me one of those and we all fell down and we were afraid and all this stuff and they're just telling them what happened. And when they assembled the elders, verse 12, and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was sleeping. While we were sleeping. What crooked leaders? Massive government cover-up. Paying off guards not to talk, but to spread lies. Some things haven't changed. Verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, which we don't want it to, obviously, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Going to protect their informants there. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And so this was the propaganda spread by the Jews to, the, to counter the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, even when the testimony about the guard and the supernatural thing came to them, that they still wanted to stop it. So they lied and sought to discredit the truth. This is how the enemy works. And this is what the enemy is still doing when it comes to the truth of Scripture and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, you can be a Christian, but don't believe in that nonsense of a resurrection. Believe in science. that will explain the universe without a creator. I love science. 
I'm not knocking science, but not at the expense of the God who made the universe. This is supernatural. This goes against the laws of physics. Guess what? There is a statistic out there. You guys know of it. I guess it's like 100% of all people die. And they don't get up and walk around. You guys heard that one? And so they lied and they sought to discredit this, this truth. And this is what the enemy is still doing when it comes to the truth of Scripture, in particular the resurrection. And Matthew tells us that even to the time he's writing this, as early as 20 years after the resurrection to 50 years before 70 AD, sometime in there the scholars think that that was still a belief, the propaganda among the Jewish people there. And it was spreading among the Jews. The resurrection is the crux of our faith, church. It's the centerpiece of what we believe. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is a sham. It's a sham. It's a hoax. And we serve a dead man like all other religions. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was crucified and he rose again on the third day. And the world is telling you, no, he didn't, and to believe a lie. And they've got an alternative truth for you. Just for a moment, flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the resurrection chapter, and I want you to go spend time in this by yourself this week. I just want to read a couple verses out of it. It's dealing with our resurrection in light of Jesus' resurrection. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.12 is where we are. 1 Corinthians 15.12. He says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Paul is saying, listen, church, faith in the literal and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable as a believer. Listen, There were people in the church, probably from a, a Sadducee background, that had influenced the church and were saying, there's no resurrection from the dead. It's possible to be part of the church and not believe what Christianity teaches. Do you know that? It's possible to say you're a Christian and not believe in what the Bible teaches. Do you know that? It's like saying, I play football, but I don't believe in literal footballs. They don't exist. It's not happening. I know that's a weak analogy, but I'm saying that's the absurdity of saying you're a Christian and you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to. That's what makes you a Christian. You believe that he is the son of God, that he died for your sins, and that he rose again, proving he had victory over sin and death. That's it. That's what our faith is centered on. You can't claim to be a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus not only died for your sin but rose again. It's, it's just, that's the fact. Paul here is refuting those who are saying in and around the church of Corinth that there is no resurrection from the dead. There are those around you who are telling you there is no resurrection from the dead. You can be a Christian and you don't have to believe this. 
because you can have the morality, but you, you, you can't believe in the substance. If that is you, then you're not a Christian. If you believe that, you're not a Christian. Because what makes you a Christian, as Jesus described it, as all the Gospels say, as the Old Testament taught, is that you believe that he is the Son of God, not a Son of God, is the Son of God, and that he came down and lived the life we could not live perfectly and died the death we should have died and rose again, that we might be resurrected as well, that we have a hope of eternal life. That's what he came to give us, eternal life. And so Paul simply says that Jesus proclaimed, he's proclaimed his risen. That's what the church is. We believe that Jesus is alive. How can some of you say there's no resurrection when he was raised? And this is the question I pose to you. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. And so he's dealing with an issue like, listen, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then Christ isn't even raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain. What are we doing? That's what we're preaching. We're preaching the risen Christ. Hope, eternal life. What are we doing as apostles? And your faith is in vain. What we've been telling you is a lie. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And so verse 15, we even are found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he, he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. In other words, we are preaching a lie to you. Paul's saying, I've got issues as an apostle. If there's no resurrection, we're lying. What are we doing? Your faith is in vain. And in verse 16, here's the crux of it. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If there's no res- and, and verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sin. In other words, so what that Jesus died? Everybody dies. 100% of us. Why? Because the penalty... For sin is death, and then the judgment. So how do you get out of that? You have to have one who conquers death, and that's Jesus. He rose from the dead. And then he goes on. What about those believers who have died before you? Verse 18, then all who have fallen asleep, they've all perished. They're gone. They've gone out into the, there's nothing. There, there's no hope. They're done. There's no resurrection. There's no life. They're not alive. They're dead. They're gone. It's over. As, as the prevailing thought in our society is these days. Hedonism. Leave, live for now. There is no then. If Christ... If in Christ we have hope, verse 19, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if we've believed in Christ in this life, suffered so much, been beaten, shipwrecked, all the things, what are we doing it for? What a miserable life. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we deny ourselves? Why do we pick up our cross? Why do we follow him if there's no hope? Verse 20, but in fact, guess what? Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? 
firstborn, first fruits. In other words, it's not necessarily the first, it is the preeminent one. In other words, when it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, it's not saying he's the first created. He's saying that he is chief over creation as the firstborn in the family has the right to rule and to reign over everything. So Jesus does. And so also the first first fruits of the resurrection, there were those who were raised before him, but it is through him that all resurrection and life flows. Does that make sense? I am the resurrection and the life. He is the first. He's the prototype of all who would come after him. Just as he died and rose again, guess what? Those who believe in him will die and rise again. And he goes on to verse 21. For as by man came death, Adam, our, our original descendant, our original guy there. Thank you. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive spiritually, physically. Here's the thing. Our DNA, our bloodline is one of death. We're all related. We all, all our descendants, no matter what color you are, what race you are, wherever you come from, all that stuff, you all go back to one guy, one girl, and particularly the chief over creation, Adam. And he fell. He sinned against God. And so it is in all of our DNA to follow him. And so this is when Jesus comes to Nick at night in John 3. He says, you all have to be born again. You need a new bloodline. And if you are not, don't have a new bloodline, you're going to die and face judgment. You need my bloodline. And Jesus came and died so that through faith in his death and a resurrection, you would die to the old man, but be alive to the new one, to Jesus Christ, and have eternal life. It's by faith. Resurrection is not an option. Jesus died, and he rose again, just as he said. And that's important because he has a lot of things he said. Another one is that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, just as he said. But now is the time for anybody to run to Jesus and say, save me. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. I know there's a lot of background and stuff, but Jesus came into the world to testify of the truth of his Father that in him is life. A light came into the world. Give your heart to Jesus. Amen? Lord God, thank you so much for coming into this world, into our darkness and shining your light. Lord, we're all trapped apart from your grace, and yet you come and offer us new life, not a life that we can manufacture or muster up or whatever it is, a life by trusting you, believing that you are the Son of God that you died for each and every single one of our sins. And you rose again to give us new life, that we'd be new creations in Christ Jesus, new creatures, a new nature. It comes through faith. And so by your grace, Lord, save those here today that don't know you. And we pray that we would be the church that not only sees that transformation in ourselves, but then would go out and do 
what you've called us to do, to preach. In the name of Jesus, amen. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week. See you Christmas Eve morning and then Christmas Eve this year. Different.